thank you for mentioning the article, which I looked at. In my way, you get sort of a schizophrenic reaction reading an article you wrote a long time ago. You read it, and I look at it, and you're hmm, very good, very good, how right. And then the opposite reaction I have is sort of the immortal words of Bob Bork. And he said that, because uh, not all that many people followed what I wrote. So I looked back, and he said, well, don't worry. He said, there are many people who've written articles and books, and they were totally, uh, you know, laughed at, prophets hawked, nobody paid any attention to what they said. Then later on, history showed that they were rightly ignored. All right, so <laughs> that's the, the I mean, now, you didn't come from Washington, the entertainment capital of the world, to hear my jokes. I have 10 minutes, and uh, I'm going to make five brief points, which I've written down on a troglodyte. <laughs> These are yellow pieces of paper. I've been writing it. Caveman. All right. The, 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 uh, the points that I'm going to make, I'm going to make five points, and I'm putting them in a slightly controversial way. The truth is it's really shaded, and there are arguments on both sides, and I'm going to try to be a little controversial. And the truth is I do believe these points, but uh, for complicated reasons, more complicated than what will appear. All right. Point number one is that there are basically two views of copyright, what I call a moral view and what I call an economic view, and by and large, the courts and the law over the course of the last 50 years have come down quite squarely in favor of the economic view. Now, what do I mean by the moral view? Well, it's well summarized by the legendary King Dermot, who said what copyright is, is every cow his calf. All right, that's right, it's a view. We'll figure it out later, all right? <laughs> the second view, I think, is that of Macaulay. Lord Macaulay, in speaking to the uh, Parliament, said that copyright is basically a tax on readers for the purpose of providing a bounty to authors. Now, if I recommend that you read one thing in the history of copyright, although I'd love to recommend my work, the one thing I would actually recommend that you read is Macaulay's lecture. Not lecture, speech in the British Parliament. Because it may have been about books, it may have been 90, 100 years ago, but it is topical and correct. And I strongly urge you to read that one well-written speech. All right, but I mean, the difference between these two views is, are you going to give the author the benefit that everybody else receives from his work? That's the moral view. Or are you going to give him the least he'll take to produce it? That's the economic view. I mean, let me give you an example. The Bible. Would you give the Bible, charge people, what it's worth to them? Or would you charge them what it would take the author to produce it? I'm using that because I want you to see the vast difference that there can be between those two amounts. Now, by and large, we've opted in the courts for the economic view. And I think you'll find that as consistent with broad tendencies of the law in antitrust, economic regulation, in area after area where the law seems to fight against giving people more than it would take them to produce the product. Now that isn't without argument, and there, I mean, but Betamax is very interesting philosophically from that point of view. Because the five, the five majority they adopted, what do they quote over and over? The copyright law, like the patent statute, makes reward to the owner a secondary consideration. The sole interest of the United States and the primary object in conferring the monopoly lie in the general benefits derived by the public from the labors of authors. Again and again, that language. The minority of four, but don't you see, the authors or the producers will get less money. Answer to that, so what? That's the beginning of the argument 
not the end. People all over the world are not paid what their labor is worth. I mean, my goodness, do I have to tell congressmen that? <laughs> do you have to tell that to the judges? I mean, and I don't even mean what we think it's worth. I mean, would somebody right really pay us? I mean, think of the teacher, the man who clears a swamp, the person who invented the supermarket. Those people are not paid what their ideas were worth. What they're paid and should be paid is what it would take to get them to produce it. Or I say that's the economic view, and that's the view which, given the five rather than the four in the Supreme Court, I think is predominant in the law today. Of course, it's up to you to say what would be the law tomorrow. All right, so that's point one, that distinction, the economic view. Point two is that the economic view requires balancing. Now, balancing what? Well, on the one hand, there are the evils of restriction. That is, the evils of stopping, requiring permission, going through a lot of red tape, because it's of enormous benefit to have people copy. I mean, you don't have to tell a teacher. I, everything I say, I want copied. It should be copied, if anybody will copy it. I mean, the problem is they won't. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and, and maybe there's even some benefit. There are enormous benefits through copying, spreading everything around. And so on the one hand, you have to look to those benefits. And what do you weigh on the other hand? Well, here I've looked at this rather excellent study. I think it's, I don't know about the conclusions. I'm not saying the conclusions, but the Library of Congress, I think this is a good document. I mean, it's a highly intelligent document. That, they, that I felt they, they've done uh, in, uh, in analyzing uh, some of these problems in this area. I don't know, but I'm not buying onto the conclusion. Is it? But what they say is on the other side is a minimal encroachment upon the rights of authors and copyright owners. At that point, I disagree. I say it's not that that's on the other side. That's the issue. What should the right be? What's on the other side is the need for the restriction to bring about the production. So my second point is that's what's at balance the harms involved in restricting from the point of view of spreading information around versus the need for the restriction to get the work out there in the first place. All right, that's point two. Now I'll become more controversial. <laughs> Three is that my third proposition is, lo and behold, in some areas, see the answer to this varies from area to area all over the place. Trade books are not like textbooks. Textbooks are not like computer programs. The markets are different in all these areas. Therefore, what's likely to be necessary is different in all these areas. You can't just use analogies. Think of Walt Whitman sitting in the garret. You get one answer. Think of a university wanting to spread information. You get a different answer. Think of Kodak able to produce cameras, film, without any protection. They've never taken patent or copyright. You think of a third answer. What analogy grips your mind is the analogy that will control it. And so you better be certain that you have the right analogy given the economic conditions of the marketplace at issue. All right, and all my third point is, is that sometimes, sometimes the answer will be no protection. Now, even here, take the area, for example, very that we're talking about now, scholarly libraries, etc. Well, the case for protection there is fairly weak. Why? Well, will the stuff be produced without any protection? A good argument that it will be. I mean, the people who produce it, by and large, are on somebody else's payroll. I wrote this article for tenure. I didn't write a sell it. Nobody buy it. But the, 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 the point is that the need for the, to get that production is fairly minimal. And of course, you'll say, well, I've forgotten the problem, the cost of publishing it. No, the question of how you get the money to the publisher, well, copyright's one way of getting it. One way. But there are other ways. 
After all, scholarly journals are, are produced by and for, by scholars published primarily for the libraries. And so the libraries can't copy it and so forth, they copy it, and therefore the, the, the journal doesn't get as much money. They'll raise the price. They'll raise the price, so if necessary, because the libraries want it. Then you say the libraries. Well, is it the case that what you gain on the swings, you lose on the roundabouts, the same money? Not necessarily. Because you at least, even if it were roughly the same amount, evaded and avoided all that enormous complexity of getting permissions, etc. So maybe you would in a sense, but you perhaps have produced a simpler way. Well, my point is not to go into the details there. I could go into them, but I won't. I just want you to focus on a question before you immediately jump to the conclusion that you have to have a copyright system to get to production, to get to deliver the money to the producer, think imaginatively, perhaps, about alternative methods of doing it. So that's my third point. Sometimes the answer could be zero or near zero. Not always and not even often. My fourth point is that new technology, of course you've heard how new technology means that all kinds of copying can go on, so we have to do something about it. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that. That's a point. But I also want you to focus on the contrary point, that at the very same time, new technology makes restriction worse than ever. That may be the primary function of new technology. Now, let me give you the example. Look, Remember, there was a lot of stuff sitting around in Pennsylvania in 1910 that was black and sticky, and it was called oil, 1810. Now, suppose somebody had a monopoly of that. Well, people would have said, what a pity. It's bad. But really, who wants it? <laughs> now, bring into play the invention of the automobile and tell you that that same person has the monopoly of that black, sticky stuff. You see, it's not necessary to gain all the monopoly profit from the telephone business that you own all the telephones. All you have to own is some little tiny bit of something that's necessary to go into a telephone and suddenly all the profit from the new invention can be yours. And therefore, to the extent that there is a potential restriction, the addition of new technology with enormous benefit creates a special problem on the restrictive side that at least you must look at before you decide, aha, the root is protection. Now you can say, well, well, look, we're not talking about monopoly John D. Rockefeller. We're talking about little bitty monopolies of reachable bitty item, and that isn't even hardly a monopoly. I say, yes, fine, then talk about that. And now beware, because there then tends to be a tendency to say the practical way of collecting the money is let everybody get together and fix their prices. And now suddenly, when you start talking about blanket licensing and clearing houses and so forth, you're suddenly moving over towards the realm, not just of little itty-bitty monopolies, but you're moving in the direction of rather grander monopolies. And the analogy becomes a little bit more apt. Well, you see, I'm emphasizing the restrictive side. There's another side to it, too, but you've gotten plenty of the other side, too. And I just want to be sure that that question's in your mind when you approach the problem. All right, my final point, that's the fourth, in other words. New technology brings new problems of copying. It also brings new problems beware of too much restriction. And the final point is that your reaction, often in Congress, I say yours, my goodness, the only thing is having this job, I used to work in 
Congress, and I, I mean, I know, this, I don't mean this seriously, but gee, it would be awfully nice if the judges could have a congressman at their elbow. I mean, you can't do it because it's a separation of functions. I mean, sometimes it would be nice if it could only be a judge sitting there saying, Justice Senator Mathias, you were right. On one point, you were alone one month. All right. <laughs> but my, my point is you learn something, I think I have, in this other job that makes some of my previous views a little less certain I was right. Now, what, do I, what am I driving at? There does tend to be a tendency, when you face an intractable problem, at least as a legislative assistant, like I was, all right, say, all right, it's very, very complicated. We'll let somebody else do it. We'll create an agency. And the agency, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. Well, all I do is flag the following warning. What you're really talking here is about dividing up money. And the human beings who can think of how to divide up money, and that's what they'll be doing once the agency's correct, don't have some special gift of how to do it. And they tend to negotiate and then split the difference or some kind of a random result. Or look at the tendencies. You get one tendency. We'll get around the problem that's very expensive to collect all these little permissions, and we'll do that by allowing clearing houses and blanket licensing. Then somebody says, my god, you've created a big monopoly potential. Don't worry, we'll regulate it. We'll set up a commission. They set up a commission. You know, they always remember the FTC and those old people used to say, let's try and label house plants in case somebody eats them. I mean, I mean, commissions don't always do sensible things. And here you've given them a job that is virtually, virtually impossible, deciding a correct allocation. And then you say, okay, don't worry about that. The courts will be there to watch them. Well, that's really the warning note. The courts will be there to watch them. I mean. As a, I mean, as a, you know, remember what Oscar Wilde said when he read Dickens' Death of Little Nell? He read Dickens' Death of Little Nell. He said, one would have to have a heart of stone to read it without laughing. All right. I mean, that's, <laughs> but I mean, that, that's, the, the, read uh, Judge Ginsburg's opinion uh, recently in a case involving a case from the Copyright Tribunal. And they say, here they've divided the money in some way, and, and a judge has a lot of cases. And so you say, well, you supervise that and see that it's right. And, I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? How do you know if it's right or not right? I mean, all I'm saying is that if you think you can avoid the problem by saying, oh, we'll create a clearinghouse, uh, we'll uh, have a commission, and then we'll have the judiciary sitting there and they're going to figure it out the right way or something, I, I don't think that we have greater expertise or knowledge or that this route will produce a more sensible result than you're all thinking about it and deciding what it is you feel ought to be done. All right, so I've emphasized the problem of the restriction. I've given you the economic point of view. I've uh, said what I think is the rough elements of the balance. I've given you at least two sides, I think, to look at with the new technology problem. And I agree the issue is difficult. And so I'm trying to avoid your asking the courts to deal with it. But, all right, I think I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs>